we're, we're going to deal with a uh, somewhat esoteric subject over the next month. I've chosen as the title of this class, Questions Satan Asks. Now, why would I pick this? If you're like me, um, I'm 72 years old. I know I look 50, but um, in my lifetime, I've never seen our country the way it is. I'm not going to make this political. I'm just going to say I've never seen the United States of America in the abyss before. We're, in, we're not like at the edge. We've gone into the abyss. Um, I've never seen a culture of darkness and death overtake a country like it's overtaken our country. I mean, just look this week, all the shootings. There's been something like 238 mass shootings in America in 2022. And it's just June 5th. Um, the whole abortion thing, euthanasia, um, all of this darkness and death. Um, I probably shouldn't say this, but you know, why are people getting tattooed all over the place and pierced? I finally got so uh, you know, queried about that that I decided to Google, why are people getting tattooed and pierced? And it popped up about three papers by sociologists, and they all said the same thing, self-loathing, that the generation, the millennials and everything, are pretty much self-loathing. If you think about it, they've grown up in a culture um, that pretty much has been without God. And they are and if they think that through, that means they're just a conglomeration of electromagnetic particles that happen to come together over time and chance to form a, a, a being, but a being that's accidental, with no meaning or purpose to life. And you know, if you really believe that, well, anyway. So I decided, uh, what's at the heart of all this? I don't think American can be fixed politically or economically or militarily. Um, the Bible tells us that God raises up nations and he brings them down. He has brought the United States of America, a country I love, down. We're in the abyss. We can't get out. It's kind of like an alcoholic. Until you admit that you're, you can't get out of this, you need a higher power. That's the only hope for America. So... To me, this says that we are in the midst of a very serious life and death spiritual warfare. The answer is spiritual. Till America turns back to God, um, she really has no hope. And that's where the church comes in, because I think it, you know, sometimes I look around and go, why isn't it worse than it is? I think it's because of the church. The Bible tells us that the church is the salt and light. We're the preservatives. For some reason, God is holding back his full judgment because there are some of us who stumblingly try to follow him and work toward his ends. So uh, we're going to talk about questions Satan asks, but that begs the question, Ron, you're a 21st century college-educated person. Do you really believe in the devil and Satan? 
I don't believe in Satan. I only believe in Jesus Christ, but I believe Satan exists. Uh, one time, Billy Graham was asked, do you really believe the devil exists? He said, yes, I do. And they said, well, how can you believe that? He said, he and I talk every day. <laughs> and if you're like me, Satan and I have a running conversation every day. He's always trying to get me uh, to do a, a lot of things. Um, and you know, there's two priorities that Satan, and we're going to pray in just a minute, because I don't want to get into this without praying for protection for us this morning. Um, there's two things that Satan wants in your life. First of all, number one, he wants you not to believe he exists. Because if you don't believe he exists, then he's, he can have free reign. Um, I love this. If you've never read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, one of the reasons Lewis wrote this book is he came across a quote from Martin Luther that Luther said the one thing Satan cannot stand is to be mocked. So this book basically mocks Satan. Um, but in the introduction or the preface to this great, I mean, this is funny, but profound, insightful. It's like looking in a mirror and uh, it, it makes very real, understandable, this whole idea of spiritual warfare and how there's stuff going on around us that Sometimes we're not aware of, but we should be. Lewis writes in the preface, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, the person that doesn't believe in the supernatural, um, or a magician with the same delight. Perhaps you've run into some Christians who see a, a demon under every rock. You know, like the guy got pulled over for speeding. It must have been the demon of speed. Had his, it was pressing my... I mean, <laughs> every day I pray for protection I name my family, pray for protection. Then I go on with my day. I don't really think about it um, the rest of the day. I think we need to cultivate a, cultivate a healthy um, approach to this whole idea of the demonic and Satan and everything else. I'll never forget, back in the 80s, we had a spiritual renewal week here. Um, and we brought in a professor from Gordon-Conwell named David Wells. And David had been a missionary, I forget where, but in his opening Monday night address, he talked about spiritual warfare and the demonic uh, occurrences he'd seen on the mission field. Well, Tuesday was staff meeting day here, and we had our staff meeting, and a person, an elder, was also the president of the women of the church, and she was at the staff meeting representing the women of the church. And she was at the... Uh, talk the night before, and David Wells was there with us in the staff meeting. And Lewis Abendon said something about how great David had done the night before, blah, blah, blah. And then this woman elder said, well, I just take real objection to what you said, that there are beings such as demons in the world. And I'm sitting there going, ooh, it's going to be exciting. And she really lit into him 
I won't name her. She's no longer here. She stayed with the other group that we used to be a part of. And um, he calmly and graciously, she said, if there are demons, then why don't we see them operating in our lives right here? And he calmly looked at her and said, he doesn't need to do that. He's got you in bondage to affluence. And boy, she didn't jump over into his camp. Um, let me tell you. But you know, uh, which reminds me of the story about uh, a pastor was preaching hell, fire, and brimstone. He's preaching about Satan one day in the church. And um, Satan actually showed up. And he comes down the aisle going, Aah! and people are flying out the windows, except for one little old lady, she's still remaining in her pew. And Satan goes up to her and says, Aah! and she's just sitting there smiling at him. He said, don't you know who I am? She said, of course I do. He said, well, I'm Satan. Yes, I know that. Then why aren't you scared? She said, I've been on your side all the time. And uh, with that, let's pray. Lord God, we don't want to talk about something as serious as Satan and the whole demonic spiritual warfare without asking your protection upon us. Please place the shield of the, Lord, shield of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ on all of your armor around this room, around each one of us, around our families and friends, and protect us from any kind of satanic or demonic influence or attack. And equip us to wage warfare against the powers and principalities of darkness and to advance your kingdom of light. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So the next three weeks, we're going to look at questions Satan asks from Scripture. And, but today, I want us just to focus in on this whole idea of Satan, who he is, what he's like, and what posture you and I should take toward him. And the first thing I want to point out to you is that scholars are pretty much united in the uh, idea that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And I take that seriously. That means if the Bible really is the inspired, inerrant word of God, God began with Job. And that's where we ought to begin our walk of faith as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's kind of interesting if the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible, the first character we meet in the Bible is not God. It's Job. Well, what might God be saying through that? Well, he presents Job as the most righteous man that's ever walked the earth. The guy really is a, a follower of God, does everything right, and everything wrong happens in Job's life, which I think is God's way of saying to the person of faith, if you're going to follow me, doing everything right and being sincere and really sold out to Christ does not immunize you, exempt you from the fact that you live in a broke, not just a broken world, but a world in which powers and principalities of darkness are actively involved and they will come after you. This morning I got a, a text with a photo from Indonesia, our church planning ministry there uh, at 
the service at our mother church, we ordained a pastor for our, our newest church plant in Kapun, Indonesia. Uh, and Ferry is the guy's name, Ferry Pasong. Wonderful guy. And uh, they sent me a picture of him kneeling as they were ordaining him. So I, I texted him. I said, congratulations, Ferry. I wish I could have been there to have my hand on your head as they ordained you. And I said, but beware. Uh, now that you've got Rev in front of your name, you get a target on your back. And he texted me back and said, thanks. I will be, I, I'm forewarned. Thank you. And it's, it's really true. Uh, Paul's not here. I'm, I'm playing hooky, I guess. But I was going to say, I have a hunch that when our almost hell's angel, Paul Kasher, was on that route, I think he'd probably say, I didn't have a whole lot of problem with Satan, but I do now after I've come to Christ. And it's like the battle is, because Satan doesn't have to do anything with hell's angels. <laughs> he doesn't have to try to get them to do stuff. They're already gone. But when you, the, the more you faithfully follow Christ, expect spiritual warfare to escalate. A lot of people think, well, if I'm closer to Christ and more faithful, I'll be insulated from it. No, no, no. It, the battle gets even worse. That's why, you know, all these, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention just released this horrific paper on sexual abuse by Baptist clergy over the past decade. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful. And yet, it, it, in, one, in one sense, it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, when you see pastors fall, um, Satan is basically lazy and he can get more bang for his buck if he can take down a prominent Christian, Ravi Zacharias, who I used to think was the greatest apologeticist of the 21st century. I used to hand out his books to people. Um, and he had this double life. And he came crashing down. He took a lot of people with him. If he takes out, you know, Joe Schmaltz over here, um, nobody knows about it and everybody just goes on. So don't be surprised. Uh, and when I, t I tell young pastors, you really need to walk a straight path because you're going to be attacked. And um, so don't be surprised that the closer to Christ you get, the more fierce the battle becomes. So Job's the first character we meet in Scripture. God is the second. If you look at, if you have your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 1. And you'll see in verse 1, we're introduced to Job. And in verse 1, it says that he feared God. So here's the second character. And he turned away from evil. But then the third character we meet in Scripture is not Moses or Abraham or Peter or John. It's Satan. Verse 6 of Job 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. What in the world is going on here? Um, people ask me all the time, why does Satan exist? Well, everything that exists is a creation of God. God created Satan, and we're told elsewhere in Scripture that he was originally created as an angel. And angels, you know, are good. Well, how did Satan become Satan? All that we're told in Scripture is that he decided to rebel against God. 
So the first rebellion against God is not Adam and Eve. It's actually Satan. Now you'd think angels living close to God and seeing who God really is, kind of stupid to <laughs> rebel against God. But there's a whole flock of them who follow Satan now. They are the demons. Well, why didn't God just go and get rid of them? I don't know. I don't know. Job, the book of Job, acts kind of nonchalant that they're having this review and heaven and Satan shows up. And God points out to Satan, hey, have you checked out my servant Job? This right, you're evil, Satan, but look at this righteous man. Of course, Satan says, well, he's only righteous because he's got everything going for him. He's rich, got a great wife, kids, a lot of camels, and goats, and sheep. You know, allow me at him, and he'll deny you in a second. And so God says, okay, you can have him, but you can't kill him. And, and Satan, you know, kills his children, um, takes all of his possessions away. Why did God allow that? I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm getting kind of angry. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us why. Just that God allowed Satan to do this. Now, there's a word of good news here, and that's that Satan is on a leash. A lot of Christians think that spiritual warfare is Here's Satan's arm, here's God's arm. They're having this cosmic arm wrestling match. And we're down here going, well, I hope the Lord wins. Um, no, 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 no. Satan in an arm wrestling match with God is sort of like the Little League World Series is coming up. It's kind of like, you know, Ted Williams batting in the Little League World Series. I wonder if he could get a hit. Um, there, I mean, it's, it, it's even greater God versus Satan than that. So don't ever think that everything's up for grabs and that maybe Satan is going to win. That's the, the beauty of reading the last book in the Bible first, Revelation. When I was a little kid, I had the whole Hardy Boy series. 30, I don't know, 30 some volumes. And when you're a kid, you don't really think these things through. So, you know, the Hardy Boys in volume eight would get into a jam and I'd start sweating bullets. Are they going to get out of this? Wait a minute, there's volumes 9, 10. You, so I came up with this idea. I'm going to read the last chapter first. And I did. And I didn't know how they survived, but I knew they were going to survive to the end. So I could kind of relax when they got into a jam, knowing that oh, this is not the end. They're going to make it. Well, that's kind of like the book of Revelation. We ought to read the last book first because... But you might be saying, well, that's too complex, complicated, and just scary and everything else. No, no, no. The book of Revelation is probably the simplest book in the Bible. I can sum up the whole meaning of Revelation in two words. God wins. God wins. So if you believe that and understand that, then you can kind of relax. Satan is not going to have the last word. He's not going to win. And so... Um, we meet Satan here as the third character in Scripture. But if you go back to Genesis, we meet him there as well in chapter 3 at the fall. And for some reason, he takes the form of a serpent. Why? I don't know. 
It just says that in Revelation 12, verse 9, uh, it's clearly explained that that serpent back in Genesis 3 is an embodiment of this fallen angel called Satan. So he entices Eve, who then entices Adam, and there we get the first instance of passing the buck. You know, when God says, you know, Eve, why did you, uh, or Adam, why did you eat the forbidden fruit? Well, that, that woman uh, that you gave me, she, she, she did it. She enticed me, and then she says, well, it's that, sir. So there's passing the buck right from the beginning, and we still do it today. So let's see what we can learn about Satan from Scripture. And if you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, turn to John 8, verse 44. We learn two things about Satan here. And the Bible's not exhaustive in telling us all about Satan, but it tells us enough that we need to know. If we look at chapter 8, verse 44, um, and uh, this is Jesus speaking, so we've got to take this really seriously. And he's talking to uh, the Pharisees, and he says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we learn two things about Satan from Jesus' own mouth. That he's, that he's a liar. I don't know about you, but I feel like when I was growing up, lying was not accepted in the culture. That if you got caught lying and you were a, a, uh, a prominent person, that was pretty much it. Now it's almost turned into an art. I mean, I'm just amazed. I'll see a politician, doesn't matter which party, they're all lying. And he'll say, well, I never said that. And then they'll show a video clip. Well, here you are saying it. Well, that's out of context. That's not what I really meant. And, like, and then people seem to go, oh, okay. And it's just like, who can tell the biggest whoppers out there? And we just accept it. Where's that coming from? Where is that coming from? And it says he was a murderer from the beginning. You know, we're watching our, the streets of our nation turn into a, a bloodbath. They estimate that fewer Americans actually own guns today than 50 or 60 years ago. So I don't think it's the gun. But what is fueling all this rage and this just murder? Um, I remember talking to a police officer one time, and he's, um, this was, gosh, 30 years ago, right after crack cocaine came on the scene. And he was explaining to me that crack cocaine is totally different than cocaine. And I said, what do you mean? He said, crack cocaine takes away your conscience. He says, that's why you'll see a report of a guy goes into a 7-Eleven, robs it, and then just kills everybody in the store, even though he didn't need to. He said, it just turns you into a, a, a being that looks at other People's being nothing more than cockroaches. And he said, it's changed police work totally. He said, it used to be we'd pull somebody over and you just walk up and can I see your license? Now, 
He says, because of crack, we assume every traffic stop is somebody who's going to try to kill us. And they have all these procedures now they go through to and uh, bless the hearts of policemen today, I'll tell you. And so there's this murder like I've never seen in our culture. There's this culture of darkness and death going on. And I remember I was 23 when Roe v. Wade was passed. And I remember thinking, um, where did they find that in the Constitution? I was a pre-veterinary major, so I wasn't really into law, but I knew enough to... And that unleashed, I believe, a spiritual warfare in our nation that has not ceased. And when we wonder why a young man goes into Uvalde and kills people, I mean, you, you look at the callousness of our culture that we're used to killing people. And video games, kids are playing video games where they're killing people left and right. And the, there, there's a blurring between the game and reality. Uh, and you know, your frontal cortex, which is where you make your deep, wise, moral decisions, doesn't develop till you're about 25. And so kids are, um, and by the way, what develops your mor frontal cortex more than anything else? Reading books. They hook people up with electrodes in their brains. Watching a video doesn't stimulate the frontal cortex. I don't get this one. Reading a book on a screen like Kindle doesn't stimulate it. But reading a real book, maybe it's something with the tactile touching the, I don't know. And it says it doesn't matter what you're reading. Trashy detective novel to a physics book. The frontal cortex lights up. So you've got kids with undeveloped frontal cortex, cortices being influenced by all kinds of this stuff we're seeing in our culture of darkness and death, and they're just acting out what the culture is pushing them to dig. Again, I'm just amazed that more is not going on than is. If you turn to Ephesians 2, verse 2, we learn a little bit more about Satan, this time from the Apostle Paul. And he says, um, he's talking to the Ephesians and he says that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here we learn that Satan is the prince of the powers of the air. Elsewhere he's also referred to as the prince of this world. Now, why did God allow Satan to have some sort of limited dominion over the world? Well, just wipe him out. I don't know. The Bible just says Satan's real, and God has allowing him to exist for a time. As you'll find out in Revelation, he will be one day spending eternity in hell. And, you know, we, we don't, most of us don't have a biblical picture of hell. We have a Dante's Inferno uh, picture of hell. And same with Satan. We picture Satan, you know, like with the horns and the pitchfork and everything else. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture that's going to give you that picture. In fact, we're going to see in a minute that he comes disguised as an angel of light uh, and oftentimes comes to us with the offers of good things. I had a woman in my church in Dallas 
came to me and she said, I'm, I got sidetracked by Satan. Said, okay, tell me what happened. Well, she was big in the community and poured her life into the Red Cross. Is there anything wrong with the Red Cross? No. But she said, that consumed me. The Red Cross was above my marriage, above my family, above the church. Everything in my life revolved around the Red Cross. And she said, I finally realized that was something Satan stuck in my life to get me from being faithful. And so Satan oftentimes comes to us with good things. Because if you're a committed Christian, he comes to you and says, I want you to be a drug dealer. You're probably going to go, but hey, come why don't you really get involved in this? Could Satan actually use Bible study as a tool? Sure he can. I had a man in my church in Dallas come to me, and we were talking about something, and he was having all these problems. And it turned out he was a, he was a part of five Bible studies every week. And I knew him well, and he loved me, I loved him. I said, so-and-so, what are you hiding from? I think one Bible study, maybe two is okay. But then Christ wants you out there living this stuff out. So I think Satan can entice us even with Bible studies. Oh, Satan wouldn't get near the Word of God. Oh, turn to Matthew 4 in your Bible. This this is the... um, Jesus in the wilderness. And you know where I'm going on this. So Jesus is out in the wilderness, the temptations of Christ, and Satan confronts him with Scripture, left and right. Satan knows his Bible. And he'll come at you and me with Scripture out of context. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, I think I'm supposed to do this. And I go, what are you basing that on? Well, there, I, I opened my Bible one day and, went, and it said to well, it's a good thing you didn't lay on the one and said, and Judas went out and hung himself. Um, anyway, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says that Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. And so um, that's why we're told elsewhere by Paul that we need to discern the spirits by the spirit. There are many spirits out there. I had a lady in my church in Dallas come and say, Ron, we got to get behind this tent crusade down in downtown Dallas. They've set up this tent. I went down there. I witnessed it. People are being healed. And I said, okay. Uh, so, so it's obvious. This is of God. We need to support this. And I did a little Bible study with her on the, um, the plagues in Egypt. Remember Moses and the Pharaoh and God gives Moses... The ability to do certain miracles. And what does it say? It says Pharaoh's magicians came in and duplicated every miracle. Where did that come from? Except one. I don't get this. They couldn't reproduce the the gnats. uh, The plague of gnats. I don't know what that is. Maybe gnats are not that bad a thing. Maybe they're kind of Satan repellers. I don't know. But the point is, just because somebody heals in the name of Jesus doesn't mean necessarily that they're of Jesus. You better check it out and make sure. 
because Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. Okay, we're in this current culture of darkness and death. I've already said lying is now kind of acceptable, even rewarded. What, somebody got a Pulitzer Prize for uh, <laughs> lying, writing articles that were lies. And I don't think they've revoked that yet. I don't know. Um, sexual anarchy. Pornography. When you have a sitting justice on the Supreme Court, and I'm not just trying to single her out, but it's just obvious example. And she's asked the question, what is a woman? And she says, I don't know. I'm not a biologist. Well, I'm not an economist, but I know that when I filled my car up yesterday, man. Um, pride. The Bible says pride's the worst sin. Do you know that? That, it says, is what caused Satan. He was too prideful. He wanted to be God. Who in this room wants to be God? Raise your hand if you want to be God. Liars. <laughs> we all want to be God. We all want to run the show, don't we? Um, now, there's good pride. You ought to take pride in your work, your family. But there's inordinate pride. And that's what the Bible condemns. And it's amazing how groups in our country now have taken that pride thing and they've elevated it. You know, we're in pride month right now. I remember uh, I, I was on the board of Regeneration Ministries in Baltimore, which all of our employees are homosexual and lesbian. And it was a ministry to try to offer hope to people in that, that we believe were trapped in that lifestyle to come out. And um, we saw some great successes, a lot of failures. But our executive director, who's gone to be with the Lord now, Alan Meniger, um, he said to me one time, Ron, you will never bring a person in that state to Christ until you love them more than they love their sexual lifestyle. That has stuck with me, and I wish I could say I always do that, but I don't. But that's the truth. You know, we can have an inverted pride that we're proud that we're not like that's, that's the Pharisee and the publican. Don't think Satan's going to use pride. I'm, I'm proud that I'm an orthodox, Bible-believing, Christ-centered follower of Jesus. I can take an inordinate pride in that, and Satan's going, <laughs> come on, go, Ron, go, go. So the best weapons against Satan are to, keep, to, to recognize that God's God and you're not, and that you and I are just abject sinners, all in the same boat with Satan and everybody else. You know, a lot of times we think, well, these certain sins, they're in this boat, and I'm more white-collar sin over here. There's only one sin boat. And when you get in that boat, you might be sitting next to Adolf Hitler. You know, we like to think, well, Hitler's kind of a... No, he's in the same boat. 
no less deserving of heaven than Ron Skates. No less. No, I haven't exterminated six million people, but I've done enough sin to keep me out of eternal life with Christ forever. And, uh, and the same thing Hitler needs is the same thing I need, and that's a savior who can do what I can't do for myself and who did it on the cross. And that's my only hope. That, so we're all in the same, but we're all broken sexually. Until you and I realize that, Satan's going to have a field day in our lives. And I may not do what some people do, but I'm still, everybody's broken sexually. We're all, and we all need to be moving toward where Christ wants us to be in that area and in every other uh, area. And you know, the temptation when we talk about the culture of darkness and death is to look upon the perpetrators of what's going on there as the enemy. This may sound counterintuitive and hard to grasp, but we should not see people out there perpetrating all this stuff as the enemy. Satan is the enemy. Those people are the hostages. And our job is to be a gracious light amidst the darkness to demonstrate true life in the wake and the surrounding death that's all around us. Um, suicide rates have skyrocketed. I said the first thing Satan wants from you is to not believe he exists. The second thing he wants is for you and me to self-destruct. And, by the way, that's not the unforgivable sin. I've done probably around 15 suicide funerals. Probably half the people I really knew well. Um, first one I ever did was Walter Dunlap, Elaine Dunlap's husband. And Lewis and I did that together, but she asked if I would preach it. I said, I'm just the youth minister. So I thought, I feel like the Holy Spirit revealed something to me. He said to me, we got to get the elephant out of the room before we deal with this. And so I asked Elaine's permission. And I've done this in every funeral ser service since, except one where a person refused to allow me to do this. I said, there are going to be people out there with all kinds of misconceptions about suicide. And I'd like to go out and blow them apart biblically so everybody can get the elephant out of the room so we can really worship and proclaim the resurrection. And she said, yes. I told her what I was going to do. She said, do it. The first thing I came out and I said was, you know, uh, there's a myth out there that suicide is the unforgivable sin based on an erroneous idea that, well, if you kill yourself, then you can't repent of that sin and be forgiven. But think back in your own life, as I do in mine, how many sins have I committed in my life that I don't even remember, or I didn't even know I was doing them. I've never had a chance to repent of them. You know, Christ's death on the cross, when he said, it is finished, he either accomplished the once-for-all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice, or he didn't. And then the other myth out there is that if you're a true Christian, you never take your life. Well, Christians can suffer physical illness. We can also suffer psychotic illness or mental illness, um, and I believe, you know like the prodigal son, when he was on his journey, then 
He's sitting in the pig trough and it says, then he came to himself. What does that mean? He integrated. He was disintegrated. He came to himself, oh, what the heck am I doing here? And he went home. But some people never get home. The disintegration gets worse sometimes. But you know, when, when you give your life to Christ, you are sealed. Christ has you in, if your life goes off the rails later on, um, God's not an Indian giver. And um, so, it, and, I, and, I, and I'd said about this, you know, this, this is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And probably about a third of the service I've done are kids. And I'm always concerned that other kids are coming and going, whoa, look at all the good things you're saying about Jimmy. So maybe I can get a lot of good things said about me if I take that route out. And I try to blow that apart. And there's a few other things, and we're running out of time, so I don't want to get to, but Satan would love for you and me to self-destruct, but he can't win on that. Nothing, Romans 8, nothing can separate you and me from the love of God in Christ Jesus once he has us. Our grip may give way, but his grip never gives way on us. You know, it's not your faith and mine that saves us at all. Who here in this room has enough faith to save yourself? It would, takes an infinitely pure faith to save anybody. Well, who has that? Nobody in this room except Jesus. And this is a real important reform doctrine that you need to understand. It's called union with Christ. What it means is that when, you, when I accept Christ and you accept Christ, then Christ gets a hold of us and all of his faith is imputed into us. It's like his robe of righteousness is placed around us. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have or how little, uh, you know, it's that mustard seed faith. You know, maybe you only got Christ by the little finger, but he's got you. And that's enough. His faith's enough to save you and me. Satan can't win. Satan can't win. Let's finish up um, by, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 6. Because here's Paul. Um, Re reminding us that we are in a spiritual war. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, beginning with verse 10. I sign all my letters, be strong in the Lord. This is where, this, where I got this from verse 10. It says, finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Then he says, here's what we're to do every day. As I said earlier, when I get up in the morning, I have my quiet time and I pray by name for every member of our family. And I say, Lord God, please place the shield of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of your armor around that name, all, that we might be protected from any kind of satanic or demonic influence or attack, and that we might be encouraged and equipped to wage warfare against the powers and principalities of darkness. And then I go on with my day, and I, I'm trusting my family uh, to be protected by God. And I'm you know, I think that's what we ought to do. Here's Paul. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Then he goes on to describe the different pieces of the armor. And that's, I would encourage you to pray something like that every day. Um, if, you were in the, if you were in the Ukraine, in the eastern part of Ukraine especially, um, you wouldn't just walk out of your house and go, I'm going to go about my day. You'd probably be packing heat. And you'd be certainly looking around, at, you know, you'd be fearful for your life. And yet probably most Christians just get up and go through their day not realizing there's a cosmic war going on around you. One of my favorite stories in scripture is Elisha and his servant. And they are in, a, in Dothan, not Alabama, but in the Holy Land. And uh, Dothan is surrounded by the Syrian army. And I mean, basically, Elisha's servant says, Elisha, it's over. It's curtains. We're done for. Then it says, Elisha prays that the Lord would open the servant's eyes to reality. You know, we think reality is what we see with our retinas and what we perceive in this physical world around us. That's, that's a part of reality. But it says the Lord answers Elisha's prayers and he opens the servant's eyes and the Syrian army is surrounded by an angelic army. And suddenly the, the, the servant's kind of okay, you know. If we could really see what's going on out there, we'd, we'd probably take spiritual warfare a whole lot more seriously, but we'd also be assured. Because no matter how bad Satan and his minions are garnered against you and me, they are surrounded by the angelic armies of God. And again, I'm sorry I can't answer some of the deepest questions we want answered. Why does God allow this to happen? I, I don't know. I do know that Satan is a tool used by God. He'll actually use Satan to accomplish his purposes. Why couldn't he choose some other? Re I don't know. Um, C.S. Lewis says that the demonic are like uh, wild beasts on chains. And there's this road, and as long as you stay in the middle of the road, you know, it can only come up this far and on either side. And, and where we get in trouble is we, we wander off the right path. And I agree with Lewis to an extent. But going back to what I originally said about Job, Job was walking right down the middle of that road. He was totally righteous. And God allows Satan to have him but not kill it. Which is a reminder that prosperity theology is a, a crock. What do you get when you cross a crocodile and abalone? A crock of baloney. And that's what prosperity <laughs> theology is. This idea that if we just love Jesus enough, are faithful, have our quiet time. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I never miss having my quiet time. And one part of my little dinky brain, this thought, Almost every morning goes, God, you're watching? See how faithful I am? You know, let's skip the cancer thing or, you know, bad car wreck. And then I go, oh, my goodness. 
So we're all susceptible to wanting, we think we can twist God's arm and God's going, oh, Ron is so faithful. He's just going to disease free for the rest of your life. No, it doesn't happen like that. So, um, and that's the front door of the faith. Being righteous is the right thing to do, but it's not going to immunize you from Satan. Why does Satan have his way with us sometimes? I don't know. But God's going to redeem it. He can't win. Our job is to put on the armor and engage in spiritual warfare. And that's best done by prayer. Just pray against Satan. Finally, uh, James says, uh, flee from Satan and he will flee from you. Um, so we're, we're, if we know that Satan's over there, go the other way. Now, he may follow you, but don't, you know, I, I, just, I hope this is not offensive. I probably you know, If you have a certain sugar disease, you probably shouldn't work at Baskin Robbins. And, and you know, so it's best just to not go where you know he is.